This morning, I started a sermon uh, and indicated that since Caleb's out of town and I have both spots today of preaching and worship that I was just going to stretch it out rather than trying to cram it all into uh, to one sermon. And so tonight is a continuation of uh, that study. If you were not here this morning, we were in Psalm 145. And we're noticing a psalm that David wrote where he expresses a number of qualities about God that are unique to God, uh, at least in perfection. And from that, David has drawn purpose and intent to serve God as an everyday God. And I begin by asking us a question, really, and challenging us to think about the level of our commitment to God. Is he an everyday God for us, or is he an only when needed? I didn't really talk a lot about that, but that is the God that many people, most people in the world, serve. He, he is a 911 call or an emergency contact for people. That, you know, in a sense is expected because people in the world who have not acclimated themselves to God just don't know that that's not the kind of God that he is. He's not a God to be called upon only when we need him. That is part of who he is, but not just that. He is a God that expects his creatures to serve him every day that we're benefited with life upon uh, this earth. And so we might expect that from the world, but what about us? What about his expectations of us? And what is natural for people who have come to know the gospel and obey it? What, what is natural? What is the natural order of a response to God by a people who have come to know his grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and his care. I submit to us that it's nothing different than what David concluded. He is a God to be served every day. The challenge for us as Christians is that we often try to strike a balance that's not exactly equal to every day. We try to find just enough or get in our mind a figure, an equation that's often based upon what other people aren't doing, right? Well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the green because relative to where I stand, I'm nothing like these people, you know? And maybe we look at borderland Christians, okay? Maybe people in the borderland are those who are just barely hanging on. You see them occasionally. They're not really faithful in their attendance. They're not faithful in their service to God. They're just kind of hanging out on the perimeter. You know, they're in the rural area of the kingdom. They're not really engaged. And it's easy to look at people like that and say, well, I'm not that, so I'm in the green. I'm okay. The challenge for us to is to accept what David is saying here. It's not about comparing ourselves and finding a happy place that we're satisfied with in our service to God. 
The challenge is to actually look at God and what the Bible tells us about him. And then in realizing that, to be moved to full service to him every day of our lives. I believe for my benefit and for your benefit, and I, I don't stand up here tonight as someone who has perfected this mentality, but I'm trying to. And I believe that it is passages like this that really help us get to where we need to be. So if we have the courage to do that, if we have the conviction to do that, then out of a passage like Psalm 145, you and I ought to be every day, be Christians who are serving an everyday God. This morning, we looked at the greatness of God in verses three through six. We looked then at the goodness of God in verses seven through nine. And then we looked at the praiseworthiness of God in verse 10. It's so our attention tonight turns to Verses 11 uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 21. And again, we'll notice three characteristics about God that David points out that, are, are the, that bring the kind of knowledge and awareness to make God an everyday God. At least I hope I'm able to convey that tonight for our benefit. I'd like to read again verses 1 and 2 that, that set our study in motion this morning. David says, I will extol you. And I pointed out that that means that I will praise you enthusiastically. <laughs> and You know, it might be good just to think about the way that we got up this morning and came to services and just ask ourselves, was it a motivation of praising God enthusiastically? Or was it, it's Sunday, I have to go. Or tomorrow when I get up and I think about living one day at a time because it's all you've been promised and that's all you can live, one day at a time, will I go into tomorrow ready to enthusiastically praise God through my life? And I, I want to make a distinction there. We don't, everything we do in life is not worship. That's not we're not worshiping God in our ordinary daily living, but we sing his praises through the way that we live our lives, through the way that we interact with people, the way that we serve him. So tomorrow morning when you and I open our eyes and realize there's breath in our body, which in reality, there, there's a possibility that there couldn't be, Right? And so when you open your eyes and you wake up and you realize God has given me another day, why did he do that? Did he do it because I deserved it? Did he do it because he owed it to me? Or might it be through his providential wisdom, I've been given an opportunity to enthusiastically praise him through the use of that day to his glory and honor. So I get up ready to extol him through my life because he is my God, he is my king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. We pointed out that the word bless carries the idea of favoring. God blesses us, that means he shows favor toward us, but we bless God in that we favor him by giving him the chief place in our lives. 
I favor you, God, and you take second place to nobody and nothing. Now that's easier said than done, but that's exactly where we're supposed to be trying to get in our commitment and our allegiance to him. A second to none God, an everyday God. Every day, verse 2 says, I will bless you, I will favor you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. We do that because of God's greatness. We do that because of his goodness. We do that because of his praiseworthiness. Now notice the fourth of these characteristics that lead us to want to serve God every day. It is the glorious kingdom of God, the glorious kingdom of God. There are few other references to God's kingdom in the Psalms, very few, other than those usages of that word concentrated right here in Psalm 145. There are a couple of other prominent ones in the Psalms. I, I expect that you will recognize these. Psalm 103 verse 19 the Lord has established his throne in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's kingdom is established in heaven. On his throne, he rules over all. But what about Psalm 45 and verse 6? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You see, we have references in the Psalms about this kingdom and with a messianic tint or overtone or undertone to them. Prominent here in verses 11 through 13 is God's kingdom. Listen to the verses with me. And notice the, uh, the emphasis on the kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. You know, if you read those verses and you're not familiar with Scripture, you think, okay, God has a kingdom. But if, if you're at all familiar with kingdom prophecy, when you read these words, you can't help but think of the messianic kingdom because so much of what David says here sounds like what prophets have said about that kingdom. For instance, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, in his, Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, about the great figure and the different substances or materials that represented those kingdoms of the world and that God was going to, in the days of these kings, in particular that last kingdom, the Roman Empire, God was going to establish his kingdom. Notice what verse 44 says about that of Daniel chapter 2. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and that kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It's almost like David had read Daniel. 
but he hadn't. Or what about Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14? I was watching in a night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. If you, as a good Bible student, have made connection with these Old Testament kingdom prophecies with, with what actually happened in the first century, when the gospel was preached on Pentecost and the church was established, then you, under, you understand in relation to, to what Jesus said about the church and it being the kingdom that these prophecies pointed forward to the establishment of the church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and in it God would purpose to save all of from among humanity who would come to him according to his stipulations. And so prophecy affirms the fact that God has a glorious kingdom and the messianic implications of it are undeniable. And so when you think about an everyday God who's worthy of service every day, you can't help but think about his glorious kingdom. Just imagine for a moment you are part of Noah's family. And you have been part of preparing this ark in which God says there's going to be salvation. And then finally, God orders you into the ark and he shuts the door and the rains start and the fountains of the deep open up and that ark is lifted up. And can you imagine the tumultuous nature of that cataclysmic event and yet just perhaps you're leaned against the wall in the side of that ark and you realize that first day that you're safe, you're okay because you're inside the ark. You're inside the vessel that God purposed for your salvation as one of eight people. And yet, that would not be the only saving act and the only vessel of salvation that God would utilize today. If you're a New Testament Christian, having obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are inside an ark of sorts. It's the church. It's the kingdom. And not because you picked one out that you liked and you waltzed into it and became a part of it. It is because when you are baptized into Jesus Christ, God adds you to that church, that kingdom. And you're on the inside. And you realize as long as you don't vacate the ark, safety every single day of your life. Now, 
what the height of ingratitude is in us when we don't live every day of our lives in reality of that salvation. We serve an everyday God and every day we ought to be appreciative of that kingdom. In fact, only an everyday Christian will be moved to that kind of mindset and appreciation. The glorious kingdom of God is a moving quality of the everyday God that we serve. Let's notice number five in verses 14 through 17. And we'll call this the completeness of God. The completeness of God. Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. God lifts the fallen. You know, the, the Jews expected the Messiah to come into the world and to immediately gravitate to them. Jay talked about this in his Bible class this morning. The the wise men, the announcers didn't come to the hierarchy of kings and rulers. The attention wasn't concentrated on them. When Jesus came into this world, he went to sinners. He went to the downtrodden. He went to the fallen. He went to those whose heads were bowed down and he lifted them up. You know, I run into and you likely encounter people who need the gospel, but they have physical ailments and life situations of brokenness. And you wish, you know, you wish you could do something to fix that while you were trying to teach them the gospel. And sometimes that's very difficult, perhaps even impossible. But Jesus and the proclamation of his own gospel could heal the lame. He could restore sight to the blind. A woman, women, men, individuals who had lost loved ones, he could restore life. And we read about it. And we get the faith benefit out of it, but those individuals got the benefit of someone reaching out to their brokenness, to their fallenness, to their downtroddenness. God is complete in his reach out to people who were in need and who were in desperate situations. Verses 15 and 16, look here at what David says. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. 
You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. A hundred people here tonight looking expectantly unto God through his word for a message to strengthen their lives. Outside of this hundred, there are thousands who don't care. They don't care. And yet every day, every day, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they look expectantly to him that he might give them their food in due season. And God opens his hands to satisfy their longing and need. I think of passages like Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, I sit in the house the other night listening to the thunder, watching the flash of the lightning, and hearing the rain pour down, and it just thrilled my heart because all of my grass is dead. And it was wonderful. But you know, everybody in Roanoke got that same rain. Regardless of their love and care and concern about God, they all got it. And tomorrow, most people will get up and eat three square meals and they won't even think about why they have the money or the provision for that. It won't even cross their mind. And we expect that. But what does it say about me as a person who knows God? If I can go through my day tomorrow and not really even think about why I have what I have, and who opened their hand to allow me to be into a situation where I don't want for anything? Acts chapter 14 and verse 17 says, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he, he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. People's hearts will be full of food and gladness tomorrow but they won't stop and say it's from God. He's an everyday God. He provides for me every day. And for that, I'm grateful to serve him every day. And we know people of the world are going to do that. And that's okay. We know that. They're ignorant of their duty and responsibility with respect to those provisions. But is it okay for me? To live like that? Is it okay for us to live that way where we don't even pause and think about it? I say no. And David says no. Because he recognizes the completeness of God. He gives us everything we need. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, 
gracious in all of his works. He's perfect in every quality and especially this beneficent quality where he benefits us daily. A psalmist said he loads us with benefits. And so the, the completeness of God. Finally tonight, number six, in verses 18 through 20, the nearness of God. N-E-A-R-N-E-S-S, nearness. Augustine made this statement in his own human assessment. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. It reminds me of something one of my instructors used to describe in preaching school. Brother Curtis Cates often talked about the God whole in man. Not W-H-O-L-E, but H-O-L-E, the whole. That we have a hole in our souls longing for filling. And we are inclined to fill that. We're inclined toward God to fill that hole. But so often we get distracted and detoured to fill it with everything but God. Christians are prone to that as well. But when you come to know the nearness of God, you realize there's nothing that can fill that hole like God. Now, I don't know where life will take you in order to discover that and to realize it. Sometimes we have to go down some pretty dark roads to realize just how valuable and how important the nearness of God is. If you've ever experienced tragedy or any kind of hardship, you know how important it is just to have someone sit beside you. Just the nearness of someone can make all the difference in the world. In fact, Job's friends were providing just that until they opened their mouths. Just the nearness is so important. And there's nothing more important than the nearness of God as our provider and our protector. Now, when I accept that every breath I breathe, every day I wake to see life, it's because I have a provider and a protector. And I realize how important it is for him to be near me. Then I'm in a good place to see him as an everyday God. Because after all, I want him near me every day. Look at the verses. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. You see the qualifier there, right? He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. 
He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You know, Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says that our sins and our iniquities separate us from our God. You want to talk about the contrast of what we're talking about? Live in sin and experience the distance from God. We're far away from him in sin. But as Christians, when we come to obey the gospel and we're forgiven of our sins and we're added to his body, there is a unique nearness that we realize and that we know and that we appreciate if we don't take it for granted. But that nearness has some conditions attached to it. And it's amazing how accurate David is in his proclamation of the conditions for nearness. Those who call upon him in truth. Not just call upon him, but call upon him in truth. You remember what Peter said with respect to Cornelius and God's demonstration of acceptance of the Gentiles, he said those who fear him and work righteousness are accepted of him. And then there is in these verses the preservation for those who love him. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. David is in perfect alignment when he speaks about what it takes to have God near. He's in perfect alignment with New Testament teaching. We have to align our lives with God's will and submit to his will. And when we do that, we have a nearness with God. And Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 7 says, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him. And so as with the Israelite nation, they're saying, what nation is there that has God so near? So it is with the nation of the church of Jesus Christ our Lord. Who else has realized the nearness of God like we have? Does it seem illogical to serve God as an everyday God considering that we enjoy that kind of nearness and closeness to him? I think not. It just makes sense that we serve him as an everyday God. We began with a question about the kind of God we serve. And as I said this morning and started off tonight, the hope is that we're moved to a conviction that God is our everyday God. Verse 21 says, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. If he is an everyday God, We will be about him every day. Every day. Now, what does that look like? It looks like being mindful 
of him every day. But I challenge you, let's just do a little experiment this week. Let's start right now and click the, the start on our stopwatch. And let's go to next Sunday. And then next Sunday, you look back. I'm not going to get up here and rehearse this again, but you look back when you've lived the cycle of a week, you look back and you ask yourself, how many days did this week did I live like I serve an everyday God? That, that will be a good exercise for me. I expect that it'll be a good exercise for you. Did I live every day with purpose and intent to serve him? And how many times throughout my day did he take second place to something else or somebody else? How often do I shelve him in order to do something else that I believe is what I need to fulfill my life at that particular juncture? Just test yourself. I'm going to do it. I challenge you to do it as well. And maybe, just maybe, unless you're already serving him as an everyday God, you be the judge of that. Maybe, just maybe, the things we've learned from David today will help us to see him in that way and to serve him that way. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to obey the gospel. That's the first step. Now, what does that mean? That means set aside everything you've heard in the religious world and come to the Bible for truth. The Bible that says that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to this earth and he presented his will for humanity. That, that is so different than what you're going to hear in the religious world. And so you're going, to have, you're going to have to wade through the mud and you're going to have to search for truth. But it's right here. And what it says, and you can see this with your own eyes, and if you don't know this already, just speak up and we will study with you and show you where it's at. It says you have to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is indeed the Son of God. And then you have to have the courage to confess that with your mouth. You also have to repent of sin. It says it right here in this book. Repent of your sins. Sins distance you from God. The cleansing blood of Jesus Christ allows you to enjoy the nearness of God. And so you hear the gospel, you believe it, you repent of your sins, you confess your faith in Christ, and then... You allow yourself to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. Not because your sins have already been forgiven. Not so that you can join the church of your choice. Remember, God adds you to his church when you obey his gospel the way that it has been proclaimed. And so the Lord will add you to his church. You'll enjoy that nearness that closeness that only a child of God can enjoy. Having your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ with which you come in contact in the waters of baptism. Now, maybe you know that. Maybe that's what you need to do. 
Maybe you're confused about that. Maybe you want more clarity. Maybe you want to see it with your own eyes. Just speak up and we will do our very best to walk you through God's word and show you exactly what you're looking for. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation in any way tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.